Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Food and Drink Federation podcast. I'm Ted Woodward, Media Manager for the FDF. I'm joined today by Ian Wright, Chief Exec. Hi Ted, nice to be here. Um, there's obviously only been one story dominating the news agenda this week, and that is of course the Internal Market Bill, which modifies part of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, I know you previously discussed the Internal Market White Paper on the podcast with Tim and David Thompson in the past. Uh, it's obviously a very complex issue, uh, and I think it's probably a good idea for us to try and have a go at unpacking that as possible. Um, first off, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the government's thinking is behind this approach? Well, I think this is born of two different stimuluses. One is the, the post-Brexit settlement in the UK and the fact that the government is, having, is seeing a lot of powers repatriated from Brussels to the UK, and it has to decide where those powers reside. Uh, and many of these particular powers and lists of things to do haven't really come under consideration by UK governments for more than 40 years. So when they were originally conceived as being ceded to Brussels, they may have had much more or much less importance in the overall polity of the UK than they do today. And obviously the context has changed as well. So we've now left the EU and we're about to end the transition period. And whatever you think of that decision, the impact of that a change in the way the structure of government, the flows of power reflecting the flows of trade, it, the context has changed and therefore it's important to reconsider where it's appropriate for each individual power and each instrument of government to reside. Then at the same time, the second stimulus is the post-COVID-19, if I can put it this way, the post-COVID-19 constitutional settlement. We think of devolution as something that, that happened 20 years ago. I mean, I'm old enough to remember all the arguments that took place before the Scottish Parliament, before the Welsh Parliament, and the rather different arguments that attended the re-devolution of power to Northern Ireland. Because don't forget, Northern Ireland had its own parliament full of faults and wholly unrepresentative. But from the end of the uh, participation of the Republic of Ireland, in the United Kingdom in the 1920s, Northern Ireland had its own parliament. So there was always a parliament in Northern Ireland. And in fact, the period of direct rule during the Troubles is the unusual part of recent history rather than the one that's most representative of the period that Northern Ireland's been in existence. So all of those, uh, all of those assemblies and parliaments have been in place now for, uh, in the case of Northern Ireland for 13 years, in the case of uh, Scotland and Wales for 20 years, only really just seen them exert their own power. And for me, the moment when that was most represented was actually not involving Scotland, which has had a singular approach to COVID-19, but in the moment when Mark Drakeford, the not always looked for Welsh First Minister, stopped English people coming over the border to socialise and decided that he would impose a quarantine on uh, mid-Wales and stopped people crossing the border on the basis that that was safer. They could cross the border to work, but they couldn't cross the border to socialise. I mean, in many ways, that's an extraordinary thing for him to do. And he did so in pursuit of his responsibility for health and the Welsh people. Both governments, Wales and Scotland, have power for health and they also have power for economics. So they have power for the physical health of their people and the economic health of their people. And what this uh, internal market bill is designed to do is to somehow make sense 
of those much, much more rekindled powers and the return of repatriation of powers to London. If somebody had said to you at the start of the year that come September, the only things in the way of a, a Brexit deal were fisheries and state aid, presumably you'd think that was quite a good thing, wouldn't you? Uh, well, I would, except that I think the role of fish in uh, British politics has from time to time been ludicrously overblown. I have many, much respect for the fisher folk of Scotland, um, and they've been made some very, very clear promises uh, by very powerful people in um, the UK government. And so I suppose it was predictable that at some point, if I can mix my metaphor, those chickens, or perhaps those cod, would come home to roost, or in this case, spawn. If cod spawn, that's obviously how little I know about fish. But um, I think this is um, a disproportionate amount of attention to a problem which is um, symbolic, emblematic, but economically represents less than 0.01% of UK GDP. The Prime Minister will have known what was agreed in the Northern Irish Protocol. Did he? <laughs> Do you think he did? Doesn't It's not evident today that he did, or it's not evident today that he realised, let's be a bit more constructive about that. I think he didn't understand or did not realise the symbolic importance of some of the things that to which he had agreed. He was so understandably keen to get away from the backstop that he missed the importance of the front stop. Well, there, there presumably wasn't enough parliamentary scrutiny when the, when the bill was passed. I don't think there was any scrutiny of any kind. I think the deal was done. Everybody went, thank God for that, it's over. We've got rid of the Mrs May. We've got rid of that government. We've, we've taken back control. Let's move on. Let's move on has been a phrase much used by this Prime Minister. Unfortunately, he moved on without checking whether there really was nothing to see here. Is this just posturing ahead of negotiations or...? No, I think it's, I think it's potentially... This, I mean, it's difficult to know, and it may well be that none of the participants really know. I think it's clear that the relationship between David Frost and Michel Barnier has broken down. I think that was eminently predictable, as they're both um, particular kinds of characters. And it's entirely predictable that they found it very difficult to like each other. And, you know, none of us would be particularly surprised about that if we'd ever met either of them as I have. I think, I think this isn't posturing on that regard. I think this relationship has broken down and they both think they're both entirely frustrated with the other one. Whether this is the end of the line for the talks is a different matter. What message does this send to other nations? I mean, the admission yesterday by Brandon Lewis that the government was willing to break international law in a very specific and limited way. I mean, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it, really? And that's that's obviously piqued interest throughout the rest of the world and how they, they view the UK will, will perhaps change as, as a result. So what, what knock-on effect will that have on our negotiating FTAs with other countries? Well, it's breathtaking. Um, and I think it's, um, it's in an extraordinary moment. And I think it's extraordinary in one way for one set of reasons and entirely predictable for another. Let me deal with the second of those. Uh, the one thing is that is clear from much of this government's behaviour is that it is entirely determined to do it its way. So we should not be surprised when uh, Brandon Lewis says they're prepared to break international law, uh, when this is the government which uh, was taken to the Supreme Court and suggested that it might ignore the 
decision of the Supreme Court because it didn't agree with it. And when the government's chief uh, civil servant, or at least chief advisor, um, was subject to the criticism that he hadn't observed the law, and although he perfectly understandably and maybe justifiably disputed that that was the case, it quickly became clear that it didn't much matter to the government itself, whether he had or hadn't broken the law. As far as they were concerned, he had behaved in an appropriate manner, and that's perfectly reasonable for them to take that view, but they were nevertheless not going to be troubled by whether it was or wasn't legal. Um, and I think so this is all of a piece with those two positions. So it's entirely predictable and we should not be surprised. The problem with it is, is it seems to me, threefold. One is, as Theresa May said yesterday, this absolutely blows into question the way in which other countries interpret our commitments made or yet to be made. So if you were a country that had seen a commitment from the UK on any particular issue, you would now have to, if we do go ahead and, and break international law with this legislation, you would have to question whether any other commitments we'd ever made were appropriate. The second area where it's of concern is when we start opining on other countries' behaviour. So, you know, we are very cross with China about Hong Kong. We accuse them of breaking their obligations. All they're going to say to us is, hang on a minute, in whatever tone Chinese uh, government officials say, they're going to say, hang on a minute, you have done the same in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And probably even more seriously, when we criticise the Kremlin for its potential involvement in all sorts of political activities of a very, very serious kind, they can look at us and say, you have no respect for the law, so how can you criticise us for the same? And then the third issue, which is most important for the food and drink industry, is this. If you are the senior executive of a business that is operating under a series of conditions that may be outside international law, you are subject to the rules of your own, wherever you're a citizen. If you're an American citizen, if you even think that you might be breaking international law in business, you're subject to the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act. Indeed, if you work for a company that comes under the orbit of the US law, you are also subject to that code. So you cannot in any way be guilty of breaking the law if you believe yourself to be doing it. And that's going to cause a massive problem for businesses having to work under this legislation. Uh, and what does it mean for sort of food and drink businesses, particularly when you consider, and you've mentioned this in the past, how businesses treat the island of Ireland as, as, as one destination uh, and Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland rolled into one? Well, it's going to be very serious. And I mean, I think the point I've just made is important. If I was running a global business, as I used to, or helped run a global business, and I thought that the way in which we were operating was at, even potentially outside international law because of the decision of the government with which we were, in, under whose auspices we were in some ways operating, in this case the UK, I just wouldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Um, and that would cause me, I think, potentially, depending on how the interpretation comes and what the legal advice is, simply not to operate in that jurisdiction. So I think quite a lot of businesses will just have to choose, if it turns out that we have broken international law, I think they'll just have to choose not to operate in Northern Ireland under that under that uh, legislation, and that will mean they can't trade with Northern Ireland. And uh, I don't think the UK government understands this. 
that's what compliance, when we have compliance codes, that's what compliance is all about. You say you're going to comply with the law and international law supersedes local law. So I think the government potentially, and we don't get that, we don't know whether this is exactly what is going to happen or what will, I mean, this hasn't been legislated yet. I mean, I, I find it very difficult, having heard what the President of the Law Society said yesterday, to believe that any lawyer in the House of Commons can vote for this legislation. And if that is the case, then the government will lose. It'll certainly lose in the laws. So we're going to set up an international, a sort of, a, a, an argument over international law in British politics. And I think that will be extremely difficult because it will last for months, probably into the point where the, the legislation was supposed to take effect. The change in rhetoric here is obviously quite notable. Uh, and the government are now talking about protecting sovereignty. Uh, I thought you might be interested to hear uh, a quote from the SDLP leader, Colin Eastwood, who quoted John Hume when he said, you can't eat a flag. <laughs> I wonder whether or not you had any thoughts on that at all. Well, I mean, it is, it is the case that Northern Ireland politicians understand this sort of economic nationalism better than anybody else on, on all sides of the religious divide there. You know, they've lived their lives under the shadow of the gun for many years, and they've seen more too much adherence to the flag can do, and it can have a terrible economic consequences, but it can also have much more serious consequences. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that we've kind of invoked this nonsensical language of economic nationalism. But, you know, when people bluster the most is usually when they, they are trying to do something other than what appears to be their intention. And I, I can't help thinking that the Prime Minister, who, you know, let's face it, has survived and prospered further than most of his critics would have expected, Many people gave him three to six months in the job. Here he is almost 18 months on. He's still pretty popular, despite the fact that it's, um, his, his opinion poll ratings have begun to decline. Um, but he's still pretty popular. And he's seen the country through a pretty massive, probably unprecedented peacetime crisis uh, without losing his job and, thank goodness, his life. Um, and uh, with some very serious questions asked about his leadership, and some less, but nevertheless interesting questions about his uh, personal behaviour. He's still there. I mean, he is, and in the same way as President Trump, pretty Teflon. Um, so I think what he's doing will have a political purpose. And it may simply be to get him through the next few weeks, the other side of some pretty difficult talks, which are clearly not going to succeed. And then there may be, I still think, a resolution in which... Um, uh, Chancellor Merkel, in one of her last acts in office, comes to bring some sort of resolution to the crisis between her and Boris Johnson. And they, in some way, if not blame, say that it's unfortunate that Lord Frost and Mr Barnier couldn't agree, but we can. And they put together a skinny no-tariff deal, which gets us through. I still think that is the most likely outcome. But I wouldn't bet on it anywhere near as much as I would three weeks ago. Well, I was going to come on to that point. I mean, how likely do you think a no-deal Brexit is now? Well, I think everybody, I think exactly like I was saying at this time last year and in uh, the run-up to the March aborted no-deal and the April aborted no-deal, and in particular to the aborted December no-deal, I still think it's unlikely or least likely, but I think everybody's got to spend an enormous amount of time, effort, money, preparing for it and we don't it's this time around we don't necessarily have the time effort money or the puff frankly 
to do it, having been completely exhausted by the COVID-19 crisis and its economic consequences. And I do think that that's, if, if there is a charge against this government, and I don't think you can make many charges against them, because all of this is pretty much what we would have predicted. So people knew what they were signing up for, the roller coaster ride they were going to get with Mr Johnson. I think the charge that does stick is that this is a diversion of effort a time, at a time when the national economy is in peril and the, and the people are utterly knackered. And how do, would a, a no-deal Brexit manifest itself on the island of Ireland in terms of food supply? And what would that look like for food and drink manufacturers? Well, sending or not sending? Food it would be less access, fewer goods in the shops, higher prices, less choice, less availability, ultimately less consumer satisfaction. It'll look rubbish. It won't be disastrous because there will still be food on the shelves. Um, there won't be the level of choice that people expected. There possibly won't be the quality that they were that, to which they've become used, and there'll be uh, fitful availability, higher prices, and probably, as I say, less choice, both in terms of products and potentially in terms of retailers. That's not a way to persuade the electors and voters of Northern Ireland that the union is something that they want to preserve. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. I know we've rather whizzed through that, um, but I think that was a sort of useful overview of, of where we're up to, particularly for our industry. Uh, thank you very much to all of you who've been listening to this. Obviously, uh, next week we will have a, a webinar instead of a regular podcast recording. So thank you very much for your time. Um, if you have any feedback on anything we've covered, then please do get in touch. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, so um, please feel free to get, through, uh, get in touch via that medium as well. I'm Ted Woodward. I've been joined by Ian Wright. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.